had a dream about this place. Welcome to Ghost Stories for the End of the World. We are kicking off the build to Halloween tonight, my friends. And <clears throat> we're going to try something uh, totally new for the show. And we're going to turn our hand to a spot of movie analysis slash, you know, critique, if I may. Um, I've wanted to cover a horror film around Halloween for the last couple of years. And, you know, honestly... With everything that's going on in Britain right now, I couldn't think of anything more um, befitting the occasion than Ben Wheatley's 2011 film, Kill List. Now, this is a film I tend to get pretty irreverent about, and it's something I've been wanting to discuss for, like I said, for a long time. So I'm hopeful I can do it justice. So yeah, I mean, why Kill List? Well, Everybody smart knows that horror movies fucking own, right? And especially um, smart people know that the best horror movies are always about something much deeper than whatever is going on on screen, you know. Sure, I don't need to give you too many examples, but, you know, think like The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so on and so forth. Now, um, Night of the Living Dead, I suppose, would be an especially famous example of that. Now, Kill List in my opinion, is a genuine masterpiece because it works as a straight-up hitman horror movie, up to a point. But it also perfectly kind of reflects the time and the place in which it was created, and it speaks to something much bigger and much darker about Britain's past, its present, and, you know, possibly where we might be going. Kill This came out at an incredibly bleak moment in modern British history. You know, the crops had failed in 2008 and they've been failing pretty much every year since then. But, you know, back in 2011, things weren't quite as psychotically nihilistic as they'd become, you know. But you could see we were going somewhere very dark um, because by the time of its release, we were a year into an incredibly dismal coalition government experiment in which the Lib Dems, in exchange for the merest whiff of power, the merest glimpse of thigh, had gladly signed off on a brutal, murderous Tory program of austerity that has permanently changed this country for the worse. You know, And the working class, the poor, the disabled, all of us were made to pay for, you know, the greed, the corruption, you know the story, um, of 
extremely wealthy, powerful people who had crashed the world economy. And those guys somehow made out like bandits and then got further made well through the immiseration of the rest, you know, the rest of us. And then in late 2010, actually, was probably um, quite an eye-opening moment for a lot of people who had only ever really been, uh, you know, had, had only ever really been on nodding terms with, with politics, had never really followed it all that closely. Because in late 2010, we had the student protests in which the, the reality of what the police were doing to those kids in the streets, you know, the kettlings, the beatings, the masons, the, the horse charges, all of that was hidden and distorted by a totally compliant media that really desperately wanted to crush all opposition to the austerity program, you know. And I distinctly remember watching ITV one night and seeing a reporter, and it might have been Robert Peston, but don't quote me on that because I'm not sure when he started working for ITV. But I remember seeing this reporter um, at the actual protest, and he was describing what had happened that evening and saying that despite the often violent and provocative behavior of the students, the police had successfully managed the protest and they were slowly dispersing the crowd, you know, and the reporter was saying all this while um, he was in the middle of this crowd that didn't look violent, didn't look provocative. They just looked tired and cold and frustrated, you know, and they also didn't look like they were going anywhere. And after the reporter said the cops were letting the kids go. One of them turned around and politely said, we've all been kettled here, you know, it's freezing. And the police are saying that none of us are allowed to leave. And then a few of the other kids nearby started chiming in, you know, in support of this. And the reporter looked like um, he'd been caught, <laughs> caught flat footed. He didn't know what to say. So the feed abruptly cut back to the studio. And it occurred to me that if those kids were stuck inside a police cordon in the freezing cold, then so was that reporter and, and his film crew. And he was still carrying water for the cops anyway, you know, and the producers had cut the feed before anything else he had to say was undermined or contradicted by the kids surrounding him. It was such an overt moment of um, shameless, you know, manipulation. And then, you know, 2011, we also had the intervention in Libya that was urged by David Cameron as somehow necessary to our interests. We had riots after Mark Dugan was murdered by the Met Police and the broad consensus amongst the uh, political and media class was that the army had to be deployed. And we shouldn't even really rule out perhaps a rolling program of executions, you know, just to bring the situation under control. Uh, even the Guardian I don't know why I'm saying even The Guardian. It's not very surprising, really. But The Guardian urged its readers to side with the police in an op-ed and pushed for a, a very harsh crackdown, you know. And this kind of reflected the majority of what stands for left liberal opinion in this country. And I'm sure you've seen the posts from um, beloved liberal TV personalities and comedians basically demanding that the Marines and the SAS be sent into Tottenham to beat the shit out of kids who are taking flat screen TVs out of shops, you know. Uh, you also had the uh, the News International phone hacking scandal that broke in July 2011. 
I'm planning a future episodes about that, so I won't go too long on it. But yeah, the scope of Rupert Murdoch's malignant influence over the uh, political and social fabric of this country has probably never been better illustrated at any time other than maybe uh, Hillsborough or the miners' strike, you know? Um, and the scale, the scale of the collusion as well between his scumbag reporters and the cops and the, the political class was just breathtaking. And the fact that David Cameron, this, you know, new Tory, this symbol of a, an enlightened progressive conservatism, the fact that he was intimately tied up in it all, you know, and the way that this somehow never really impacted his time as prime minister in any meaningful way, just like every other bit of dirt that he was involved in, you know, something I could think about for hours. Now, another thing that happened in 2011, but we wouldn't find this out until 2012, is that in December of 2011, the BBC would spike their expose of Jimmy Savile. And the explanation as to why they did that has never made any sense whatsoever. Um, and I guess, I mean, I'm not usually one for sharing like biographical details or at least not too many of them, but yeah, I mean, at the time I was kind of drifting, kind of aimless, just floating from one shitty menial job to another contract work, you know, cause I mean, the recession was still going on. Basically people were getting laid off. My friends were like either in the same boat as me or they were moving abroad as quickly as they could, you know, um, looking for opportunities elsewhere. And it just felt like everywhere you looked, you know, the entire country at every level of institutional power was just wholly corrupt and it was falling apart and it was ready to collapse. And it felt like this because it was like this. And it's incredible really to think that it's all only gotten worse since then, you know? And then at that particular time, I just remember this, constant overwhelming feeling of anger and just genuine terror about where the next paycheck was coming from. I was doing spells on the doll, which I mean, it's one of the most miserable experiences you can possibly go through, you know, being forced to jump through all the hoops that the job center wants you to jump through just so that you can make, what is it claim about 650, seven quid a day, something like that. Not much money at all. So yeah, I'm pissed off. I'm in a foul mood pretty much. And I'm feeling a bit adrift, a bit lost, a bit, you know, worried about the future. And then Ben Wheatley's kill list just drops like a bomb. And it somehow perfectly reflected all of this, you know, um, and Wheatley had already caught my attention with this nasty, hilarious little film called Down Terrace, which I would highly recommend um, you seek out if you haven't seen it already. And you should try to watch all of his films, actually, if you can, because there's always something worth seeing going on with them. But Down Terrace showed that he could do something um, interesting and funny with maybe the most exhausted, dull genre of all, which is, you know, the British crime film, the British gangster movie. He somehow managed to make this incredibly funny near single location film that just follows this crime family and how everything falls apart with them, you know. Um, and 
he has this ability to expose the the kind of the jarring horrifying sometimes funny violence that's lurking behind the the facade of otherwise mundane and familiar british surroundings so in this case a terraced house you know in the case of down terrace um and this is something he's evinced a recurring fascination with you know uh, if you check out a field in england as well that's set during the civil war sightseers that's about a camping trip in yorkshire my beloved yorkshire uh, and then high rise you know the his adaptation of the the jg ballad story now kill lists were built on down terrace and it expanded outwards at the same time and it added a genuinely frightening atmosphere to the mix and it took a much broader, much more cynical and, dare I say it, penetrating view of British society in telling what sounds like a fairly straightforward story. You know, a hitman accepts a job, the job quickly goes off the rails and voila. But what Wheatley did is he fused this kind of, you know, fairly basic crime story setup together with I suppose you would call it folk horror, although I'm going to get into why it's not actually accurate to call Kill List a folk horror film uh, a little bit later on. But we'll say that folk horror, you know, cult-themed horror, that black comedy that he does so well as well, that's in there all the way through it. And he managed to film it all as well in a way that is not too dissimilar to a Mike Lee or, you know, a Shane Meadows movie. Now, for non-British listeners, this style of filmmaking, almost verite style, where it feels like the conversations are real and are being improvised on the spot, because, you know, very often they are. Uh, we tend to call that kitchen sink over here, but only if the principal actors have regional accents. Um, otherwise... We, we don't use that term. Um, but um, yeah, I, I hate the term kitchen sink. I prefer to just think it sounds like semi-improvised, you know. So for me, that's part of, that's a big part of what makes Kill This so scary, you know. Because in the first act or so, it's less like a painstakingly plotted, you know, crime horror flick. And it's more like a series of real moments with people you you recognize as knowing in your own life. And we just happen to be watching their conversations unfold in front of us. You know, it's just the essence of a really good way to, to set up a film. And it's only then, you know, once we think we know what we're dealing with, uh, a crime comedy caper movie, you know, it switches and it switches again. And yet somehow right from the very first second, there is something just discordant and wrong with this entire film. Um, not least because of the, the constant, near, relentless, um, droning undercurrent of just this, this strange noise music that leaves you permanently unsettled, even when it's a relatively funny scene that's playing out. So, yeah, Wheatley, Wheatley is very good at doing this. He's very good at making films, um, <laughs> in case I've not made that clear yet. Um, and... He's great at returning to what we think of as, you know, well-worn genre cinema and finding something wild and unexpected to do with it. And it's because of that, you know, I'm actually genuinely interested to see what he does with The Meg 2. <laughs> I'm just curious as hell.
So, in thinking about how to put this episode together, I think it's probably best if it falls somewhere between a commentary, a review, and an analysis, you know, with some plenty of digressions and riffs and whatnot. Um, and I thought we could maybe just go through it, you know, it could almost serve as an additional commentary for the film. And just take it apart, if not scene by scene and line by line, then, you know, step by step at the very least. And I think the most significant thing to bear in mind in this early going is that the entire film begins with an argument over money, you know, between Jay, uh, played by Neil Mascal, and Shell, his wife, who is played by Mayanna Burring. And the fact that they are arguing over money is very significant. Money and the failure of capitalism will play a major role throughout this film. And it kind of recalls the opening scene of Eyes Wide Shut, where the very first thing that Tom Cruise's character says in that entire movie is something like, honey, do you know where I left my wallet? Something like that. And just like with Eyes Wide Shut, funnily enough, um, there's a huge question as to how much of what is depicted on screen in Kill List is literal, how much of it is actually happening, how much of it is just the the product of Jay's fevered psyche, you know. Because there are so many sequences that have this uncanny dreamlike feel to them. But anyway, the reason Jay and Shell are arguing over money is because Jay hasn't worked for eight months and he'd saved up around 40 grand. And gradually over that time, he's burnt through it, you know, with drinking, eating, letting himself get out of shape, making ridiculous purchases, um, like buying a, a jacuzzi to help with his back injury, which he sustained on his last working assignment. His last working assignment was a job in Kiev. Jay and his partner, Gal, are hitmen and they were contracted to presumably kill somebody in Kiev, and the job went horribly wrong. Whatever happened there was so traumatic and horrifying that Jay doesn't want to work as a hitman anymore. He's scared to go back to work. He's almost got PTSD, something like that. And just by the way, fucking Kiev, like, talk about uncanny foreshadowing, you know. So... As an interesting aside, that's one of the big mysteries at the, the heart of this film is what the fuck happened in Kyiv? What happened in Ukraine that, that left Jay so uh, traumatized and so, yeah, angry and resentful and with this building sense of psychosis? Um, now, apparently there is actually an answer to that, which we will probably never find out because... When they were touring Kill List around the film festival circuit, Ben Wheatley and his wife, um, I think she's called Amy, did actually script and storyboard a short film that would have been used as a kind of extended trailer. And it was going to be the job in Kiev. It was going to be um, what Jay and Gal actually did, what they got up to. So there is an answer to what happened, but they never really they never made the film and they will probably never make it and release it. So we we won't ever find out. I do have a theory though, 
which I'll get into um, a little later on. So yeah, this is smack bang in the heart of austerity Britain. Like economic pressure is absolutely everywhere. And at the same time, Jay is also heavily medicated as well. Throughout the film, you'll see him pop in different pills and lying to Shell about um, the prescription, about how many times a day he's supposed to be taking, say, painkillers or, you know, uh, medication for his, his mental health. And we should probably talk a little bit about the characters of Jay and Shell themselves. You know, the everybody around these parts, I, um, I'm from Yorkshire, this film was filmed in um, Sheffield. Everyone around these parts knows a Jay and Shell. You know the uh, the couple with a kid and two cars who live in a fairly crappy new build house. I believe in America you guys would call them the mansions. Over here we call them Fisher Price mansions, but it's the same thing. They're generally built by a company called Barrett's Homes, which was came to be kind of a symbol of Thatcherism, you know, because Thatcher's mantra was that a working class that can afford to buy its own home is a working class that will never turn communist, you know. And in the 80s, that seemed like a viable way to ensure Tory hegemony, you know, forevermore. That dream has died a death a thousand times over since then. Um, but the myth the lie still persists, you know. And generally they're known for being quite poor quality, quite crappy material gets used in them. They're full of damp, they're full of mold. Uh, there's always issues, you know, with the plumbing, the electricals, the gutters, so on and so forth. But they aesthetically appeal to a certain kind of person, you know. They look like the kind of place where someone who is doing well and getting on might live. And that's very important to a certain kind of British person is doing well and getting on, you know. So a new build home is kind of a symbol of aspiration. You know, the working class lad or lass on the make, you get yourself a new build house. And like I say, everybody knows Ajay and Shell, the slightly schlubby lad who's a little bit out of shape, but you still wouldn't really want to have a fight with him, who's married inexplicably to um, an incredibly hot woman. And it's hard to figure out how they actually met each other, but they did, you know. Shell and Jay, as well as arguing, they're getting ready to host a dinner party at which Jay's best friend and his business partner, Gal, is going to be um, attending with his new girlfriend. And there's a very funny scene where Jay gets sent out to buy stuff for the party, you know, booze, food, what have you. And he comes back with um, 24 tins of tuna and 10 bottles of wine. And this, in addition to the jacuzzi that he's splurged on, it just tends to show that Jay is kind of very much, for all his tortured musings, Jay is very much a kind of comfortable, sort of detached uh, bloke who doesn't really appreciate the value of a dollar, you might say. And it's, you know, it's just quite funny considering the film opened with a huge screaming match between him and Shell about money. And then he's going to blow in God knows how much on just nonsense. You also have this interesting scene where Jay is playing with his kid in the back garden and they're sort of having a 
pretend sword fight and then Shell gets involved as well. And that's another good bit of foreshadowing for what's going to be coming later on. By the way, this will be a spoiler heavy um, film discussion. So if you've not seen this film, I highly recommend you go and see it and then come back to this episode. One thing about Ben Wheatley's films is, like we said, this this idea of taking just quintessentially British things and putting this twist on them that exposes something very dark going on beneath that. And a really good early um, indication that he'll be doing that a lot in this film is when Jay tells his son a bedtime story. And it's about Jay's time in Baghdad. It turns out that Jay and Gal were both in the British Army. And he tells him this story about Baghdad and how a column got ambushed. And he makes it into a kind of, you know, heroic, noble sort of fairy tale. And what could be more British than that? You know, some uh, foreign misadventure gets spun in the national psyche, you know, into being a heroic tale of virtue and, and chivalry. And ultimately, it's always someone else's fault, you know, when things go wrong, it's never our fault. And this will become another recurring sort of theme in the film is the the surface level appearances giving way to something much more brutal and harder to deny, something that completely crashes the the lies and the myths that we tell ourselves. So whereas Jay is this obviously damaged human being who, if not an outright psychopath at this point, is definitely a sociopath and, you know, he's fairly bleak, pessimistic outlook on the world. Gal, his business partner in contrast, is, you know, very wry, very funny, jaded, but not cynical, um, friendly, you know, easy, going and affable. And his new girlfriend, Fiona, is, well, very interesting, shall we say, as a character. When she's asked to explain what she does for a living by Jay, she says she's in human resources and that her job there is to assess weaknesses and find underperforming assets, you know, as in staff members and personnel and whatnot, and see what she can do to sort of reorient them and get them back on track, particularly if they, you know, they seem to have some potential or something like that. Jay says, so basically you sack people and she says, it's nothing personal, which with what will be coming later in the film is uh, quite a cold-blooded line. There's also another point where Gal and Jay are discussing, um, you know, war, being in the army, whatnot. And Jay says that in comparison to soldiers in the past who had, you know, noble battles to fight, he says, what did I get? Fucking Iraq. This feeling of cynicism is just all pervasive, that there is nothing on the horizon to look forward to, and the past don't look all that sweet either, you know. And it's in the middle of this um, dinner party that Jay and Shell have another massive row this time about whether or not Jay is um, doing all that he can do to really provide for his family, you know. And coincidence or not, Gal is there that evening with a new proposition, a new job um, for him, a new client. Shell apparently knew, and that's why this dinner party is really being held, kind of ulterior motives going on. 
At one point, Fiona steps away from the party and goes to the upstairs bathroom and carves a symbol into the wall behind the mirror. Or rather, she carves it into the back of the mirror and then hangs that on the wall. And she also takes some uh, tissues that have little blots of Jay's blood from when he was shaving at the start of the film. She takes them with her. First note that something, you know, like ancient and, and primeval is going on here. After the dinner party, um, as Jay and Shell are sort of waving goodbye to Gal and Fiona, Jay just turns around and says, thank fuck that server. So he kind of led her to believe that he'd actually come around and he was in a really good mood and having a really good time. And the whole time he was just his usual miserable fucking self. And this immediately is followed by a scene of his kid uh, telling him to wake up the next morning. This also becomes a recurring line throughout the film. Uh, there are different points where Jay is told to wake up, which raises that question that I, I asked before about how much of what is happening is really happening and how much of this is just some kind of fever dream. So yeah, after initially sort of declining Gal's job offer, Jay finally accepts because he realizes they need the money. Shell is probably getting ready to walk out on him if he doesn't do something to bring something in. And we're off to the races then. And it turns out that not only does Shell know that Jay is a hitman, she actually handles the, the logistics of these jobs. You know, she books the hotels, she hires the rental cars, presumably books the flights and so on and so forth. She even appears to have access to um, high-grade military weaponry, you know, automatic rifles and the like. There's a very good chance that she will also know exactly what happened in Kiev because Jay seems to tell her quite a lot about, you know, each job that he does. And this is where another theme comes in here, uh, which is the theme of um, complicity with these vast systems and these, these vast operations and this machinery that none of us really understand, but somehow we are all complicit in the operation of, you know. And it's at this point that Jay finds a rabbit in the back garden, dead rabbit. Uh, it's been gutted. It's like mulch. And he takes it in the house and fries it up. And then as an act of kind of, you know, childish defiance, eats it in the back garden in front of Shell and his kid who are watching him from, from the kitchen. There is um, good reason to believe that this is actually an offering from the mysterious organization that will come to dominate this film towards the back end. And Fiona is some kind of emissary of it by accepting and eating that meat there's something very you know ritualistic about that jay unwittingly has um taken the first step on this road but to say that they're you know experienced hitmen or mercenaries it's remarkable how little uh, due diligence either jay or gal actually do about um this new job offer they don't actually know who the client is they just smell money, you know. And when they go to meet this guy in a fairly bleak looking motorway side hotel, he slashes Jay's hand with a knife and sign the contract is effectively signed in blood. I like this car. Yeah, 
looks nice, but there's a dog on corners. Yeah. yeah, better be safe and sound. It's a bit over the top for a meeting, isn't it? Do you know who's in there? Because I fucking don't. Recommendations. They're well earned. Oh, good. Necessary. Kiev was stormy. I'm in the process of rewriting it. Good. It's important to learn from one's mistakes. I always find. <laughs> Fuck, that was dramatic. I'm bleeding on the carpet. None of them ever said please or thank you. That's what really fucks me off. I mean, like, good manners cost nothing, sure, doesn't it? How did he know about Kiev? He's just letting you know that he knows. Who's that like? Psychology, innit? Ah. <clears throat> oh. Oh, God, no. Is that your wanking hand? No. Oh, yeah. Every cloud. This raises the first sort of tantalizing hint that whatever this organization is that Fiona is potentially attached to, it's far reaching and it has a lot of influence because they have somehow already found out about Kiev. They've known about it for a long time. And Again, we have another kind of austerity Britain moment when they get to the first travel lodge when they set off to to hit the first guy on the list. And <laughs> the Jay's card is declined and can't pay for the room, so Gal has to pay for it instead. There are all these little things going on throughout, you know, where money becomes an unexpected issue, you know, at a time when in a normal film, we'd just be getting towards the you know, the big action sequence where someone gets killed or someone has a gunfight or something like that. Quite funny, really. You know, even hitmen in Britain aren't spared the the grim meat hook premiere in concrete reality of life <laughs> in a time of austerity, you know. The question of Jay's state of mind really comes to the, the forefront during a scene at the hotel where he and Gal are having dinner and a group of 
Christians behind them start having a sing song on an acoustic guitar and the guy singing on the guitar is Gren from Game of Thrones. Keep an eye out for that. Whereas most people would be content to just say, well, that's pretty fucking annoying. Jay actually makes a point of getting up, getting the guitar and basically threatening this guy, you know, and it speaks to this, I guess, ardently anti-Christian vibe that Jay has, you know, this is a guy who turned away from the light a very long time ago. And it's ambiguous at this point, how happy Jay is actually being in this state of mind, you know, for all that he protests and pretends that he doesn't like the life, he doesn't like what he does for a living. We're going to see that he seems to get on with killing pretty well, and he doesn't need much of an excuse to start doing it. So the first target is just called the priest. And one thing I love about this film is for each of the targets, it just comes up on screen in stark black and white, you know, the priest. And while they're scoping this guy's house out, Gal says something to the effect of, um, it doesn't look like the house of a, a top villain, you know. And Jay, without missing a beat, says, you know, he could be fucking kids for all we know. And they're talking about the the difficulties of killing a man of the cloth, you know. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the, the morality of that exactly? And this is where Gal says something very odd and very jarring. He says, it's a priest. At least it's not a toddler that we're killing. So here's what I think may have happened in Kiev. I think whatever the job was that they did, they botched it so horribly or something went so horribly wrong that they, as well as killing the target, they ended up killing um, like one of his kids. But the alternative to that, something that's um, a little bit more disturbing, is that maybe the kid was part of the list that they had in Kiev. Personally, I lean towards the second one, that for whatever reason, there was a kid on the last list of hits that they did. And that's why they're Jay is so fucked up now. So when they finally um, get around to killing this priest, who, by the way, is played by a guy who was in Down Terrace, and I cannot remember his name for the life of me. But when they finally get around to killing the priest, he turns around to Jay and says, thank you. He thanks Jay for killing him. The first indication that something is genuinely wrong here, you know. And we, as the viewers know that, well, we know going in that there is a fucking cult involved here. So we know, shit, man, like the priest is probably in the cult. But why is he thanking Jay? You know, why does he welcome death at the hands of Jay? The next target is the librarian. And this can be read as kind of the, the hinge point on which the film really begins to shift now. We start getting a lot darker. There's a lot less comedy. Because they first scope the librarian coming out of a, a warehouse lockup. They let him go. And Gal wants to follow him. Jay says, fuck that. I want to see what's in that lockup. It's almost like Jay intuits now that something deeper and much bigger is going on. Is this what possibly happened in Kiev? Did Jay go off the reservation there as well? Who knows? So they go in the warehouse and they find shelves of pawn, you know, and they think, you know, could it be that this is like a pawn distribution warehouse? But as uh, 
think Gal says there's not enough of it here for it to be like a distribution depot or anything. Gal goes a little bit ahead of Jay and he sits down at a table where there's a TV um, and he presses play and you don't see anything, but you do hear the beginning of a scream, a very high pitched scream on whatever it is that Gal's watching and he turns it off immediately. So when he says, you don't want to watch that, Jay says, well, I fucking have to now, don't I? He sits down and watches it. And this time we hear much more. Now it's always been sort of ambiguous what it is that's on the film exactly. But I think it's pretty obvious. It's some kind of like snuff porn, uh, child tortured thing that he's watching. And the very first time I watched this film, <laughs> I didn't realize how sort of cerebral it would be. I thought it would just be a straight up you know, hitman horror B movie kind of thing. So I got really stunned to watch it. And when it got to this bit, I had to actually stop the film and go out in the garden for a bit. It was like nighttime. I had to go out and just have a cigarette and chill the fuck out. Like I wanted to see what happened in the rest of the film, but it just, it really did a number on my head, did this scene. Because the beauty of Kill is this so much is kind of abstract and told through implication you know that yeah they, somehow he manages to find a way to subvert you know show don't tell sometimes he doesn't even show and that makes everything so much scarier because it imprints on you at such a deeper level because your mind just goes into overdrive especially if you stunned when you watch it trying to fill in the blanks and of course because you know the context the atmosphere of the film that you're watching Everything you're trying to fill these blanks in with is somehow even darker than what is actually on screen. It's the perfect film to kind of drive yourself around the bend, really, thinking about. Naturally then, Jay kind of loses his mind and they go track down the librarian and, you know, beat the shit out of him in his house. But there's something very quintessentially British here as well, because I'm sure that any British listeners will know this feeling. I don't have Facebook anymore. I haven't had it for about 10 years. But when I did, there would always be some local news story about, you know, a nonce or, you know, whatever, like a Cub Scout leader who was a pedophile or something like that. And inevitably, you would see a bunch of guys who, funnily enough, have a kind of J vibe to them, you know, feverishly posting in the comments, you know, give me five minutes in a, in a room alone with him, man. I'll fucking smash him up, yeah. Like, and at a certain point, a lot of it starts to feel like projection. It's not so much about, you know, punishing um, the child molester or, you know, uh, making him pay for what he's done. It's more about just working out your own aggression um, and anger at, at the state of things on the the easiest available target, you know. And it feels like that with Jay. Like if we are to assume that my theory is correct about Keeve, then really how does Jay have any moral standing in this situation to be, you know, standing in judgment on this guy? Jay's a fucking hitman. He kills people for money. You know, nobody in this film is is morally clean whatsoever. So while Gal goes off to find the librarian's safe and, you know, hopefully a little bit of money, 
Jay is burning the librarian with cigarettes and beating him, his knee and hand, with a hammer. And Wheatley, very astutely, does not cut away, does not show us a reaction shot, doesn't do the shitty arty thing of just showing a, a blank white wall that gets splattered with bits of blood. Nah, nah. He just keeps the camera blankly focused, you know, on the hand, on the knee, on the blood just pouring out of this guy's face. And that's when you start to really feel like you're watching something that's not so much being scripted and blocked and filmed, but something that you might find on a, a dark corner of the internet, you know, the kind of thing that when you see it, you can't stop thinking about it for days afterwards, you know. Um, the whole film has that feel. Every single frame has this slightly illicit, evil, menacing vibe coming off of it. And again, the librarian is thanking Jay. And then he says to him, does he know who you are? Meaning Gal, does Gal know who you are? Jay doesn't have a fucking clue what this guy's on about. And then he says, I want you to know, I'm glad to have met you, the librarian. Jay at this point has just, you know, he's had enough. And meantime, Gal is in the bedroom and he's going through all these documents and files that he's found. And it's got the cult's logo, which is kind of like a cross inside a circle and then a sort of triangle on the top half of the, the, the cross sign. And Gal is looking at pictures of himself and Jay, you know, um, scoping out the priest's house. And then there's a file on Keeve as well. So whatever this organization is, it definitely knows what they've got up to and who knows how much further back it goes. I mean, again, it's another very clever Ben Wheatley thing not to actually show us a scene where, you know, Gal does something shitty and embarrassing, like makes a, a link network of all the different files and charts and stuff that the cult has and explains everything in thorough detail. We're just left to ponder, you know, how much do they actually know? And meantime, mean time, right? Jay, oh my God, Jay takes the fucking librarian and lays him on the table, like forces his head down. And then he just starts swinging the hammer at the guy's head. Bop, 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 bop. No cutaway, no nothing. This guy's head just fucking caves in. The papier-mâché and the watermelon is just flying everywhere. And again, it's got that feeling of something you would see on the internet. You know, the camera is completely blank. It doesn't pivot or cut or do anything to suggest how you should feel while you are watching this. And at that point, I had to stop the film again, first time of watching, and just go outside and <laughs> have another cigarette. So this is two cigarettes in about five minutes here. Um, so yeah, we're back now. And it turns out that Jay has gotten the address for where this weird snuff porn torture stuff is being made. It's somewhere else in the city. And against uh, Gal's um, pleas, you know, over and above his demands that they just keep to the job, stick to the path, Jay decides to go off on like a one-man vendetta, you know. And Gal enters this filming location about 20 minutes after Jay has gone in and he just finds an absolute massacre there. You know, there's a dead dog, dead guard, dead guy in the actual film studio bit. 
And it's pretty obvious now at this point that Jay really is just off the hook, unhinged, complete psychotic, you know. While they're burning their clothes and stuff later on, Jay says to Gal, they're bad people and they should suffer. And it's obvious that he seems to view his job as some kind of, I don't know, vigilante thing, a mission of mercy for, you know, scumbags, like putting them out of their misery. It's a lie that he tells himself, you know, so that he can keep functioning. Anyway, the whole time this is going on, Fiona has started to come around the house and, you know, get friendly with Shell. We never actually see any scenes with them, like chatting or, you know, drinking wine or anything like that. But it's, we are given that information that Fiona has started to spend time with Shell. So, you know, it's pretty safe to assume at this point that Fiona is now keeping tabs on the family. So let's stop and summarize very, very briefly, right, <clears throat> where we are. We have Jay and Gal, two ex-forces members. Jay lives in a, you know, three up, three down new build with his beautiful wife and their kid. And he just so happens to make his living killing people for a living, right? The targets that they've been given are representatives of institutions in British society. And while you think in broad terms, you know, the archetype of the uh, the priest, the religious figure is, and the church itself, you know, it's supposed to be a, a place of compassion, of charity, of justice, of good, you know, and the librarian. And you think of the librarian and the library supposed to be a place of wisdom, knowledge, you know, learning, and altruism as well. You know, you go get your library card and you can access all this knowledge for free, you know. And in both instances, these institutions have been kind of symbolically perverted, corrupted, because it's pretty obvious that both of these figures work or worked rather in some capacity for the cult, all right? And just like with Jay's ostensibly um, typical family setup, it's Wheatley again, up to, up to his tricks, baby, because it's saying, you know, Britain is a country of facades. And really when you get beyond the surface, when you get behind the facade, what you find is that there is just something ugly and violent and evil driving almost everything in this place. This is a truly haunted country. And while Jay is at the uh, Premier Inn motorway hotel again, he sees Fiona across the dual carriageway and she's waving at him. This is late night at this point. And he just waves back blankly. Is this actually happening? Is he just imagining this? Or has she actually somehow traveled to where he is to kind of, dare I say, bewitch him? Is Fiona some kind of witch? Does she actually have some sort of, you know, supernatural ability? I don't know. But it's again, it's a dreamy, surreal sequence that forces you to ask the question, how much of any of this is real, you know? And that kind of, that feeling is further reinforced in the following few sequences now because Jay and Gal, it's pretty obvious, uh, 
need to chill out because they basically they massacred the librarian, then they massacred the the uh, Pana producers, and they decide to kind of ease off for a bit, take a bit of a break from the job. At which point Jay returns home and he finds that the cut that was given to him by the client has gotten horribly infected. Like all his skin, you know, his chest, his stomach is all livid. So he goes to the doctor, but this isn't his usual GP. This is some random guy that Jay doesn't recognize. And while he's asking for help, you know, antibiotics, whatever, the GP is just talking in riddles and then finally says to him, the past is gone. The future is not yet here. There is only ever this moment. And there's something extremely, dare I say, Randian about that. You know, there's something of the, the social Darwinist about that. Very Thatcher, right, kind of attitude and outlook. Nothing really matters other than the individual and the moment in which he is existing. And it, yeah, it's also interesting because the GP takes the time to tell Jay that there is no deeper infection. You know, there is no cause for concern. There's no broader, more severe problem that needs treating because there is only ever this moment just keep gliding along the surface, you know? And again, not to just try and clumsily crowbar some half-assed political analysis into this, although that is what I'm going to do here, but who could deny that that is almost word for word the exact philosophy that our governments, successive governments have been operating under now for the better part of 40 or 50 years, you know? Just keep moving forward. Don't stop to examine anything deeper than the current moment, you know. And then again, another quintessentially British moment. Jay finds that his cat has been killed. It's been hung uh, in front of his door at his house. And what does Jay do? Yeah. He's signed a contract in blood with a guy who is obviously creepy as fuck. He's killed two people who thanked him for killing them. Gal has files and dossiers that are covered in a strange occult symbol that would indicate that there is something broader going on here, you know. And Jay, typical, typical Essex lad, he blames gypsies for his cat being killed. And this is kind of another turning point in the film now because Jay and Gal decide to go visit the client again and tell him, we don't want any more of this. We don't want any, we quit. We don't want to do the job anymore. But this time the client is flanked by, I guess, heavies, enforcers. They're all wearing their suits and skinny ties. The client basically says, it's not happening. You, you will finish the job. They offer more money and you can practically... <laughs> You can see the, the pound signs flashing in Jay and Gal's eyes. A client says, um, you know, if you, if you walk away, you die and your families die as well. And at this point, Gal asks a very interesting question, which is how long have we actually been working for you? And the client won't answer. And then when they ask, what is this all actually about? The client says, reconstruction. 
But what are they reconstructing? Is it Jay? Is it Britain? What is it that they're reconstructing? We're going to return to this question. And now it's around this point where we start heading into the home stretch of the film. So Shell and the kids split for this cottage that, you know, they earn. And Jay and Gal decide to go and do the final target on the list. Uh, Jay has by this point been told to wake up uh, by Shell during a really nasty argument. So that's maybe the third time that someone said that to him. And the final target is an MP. And what's extremely interesting is that Gal and Jay just accept, yeah, they just take it in stride that they're going to be killing an MP. And it's stuff like this that makes me wonder if, if Wheatley is pilled in some way, because it suggests from the complete nonchalance with which they greet this request that Jay and Gal have maybe done this before, like killed a politician or, you know, someone who represents the state in some capacity and should therefore be above, you know, underworld. Uh, machinations and it's this final target and what happens during this attempted hit that I think contains most of the answers for the film as a whole even though the film was slaughtered at the time for basically having a cop-out ending almost like an ending that didn't explain anything and so what I'm going to try and do is explain as best I can what I think was actually going on. And then you can hit me with your thoughts as well. So Jay and Gal have to go to this vast estate in the middle of the English countryside and um, scope out this mansion, which is presumably where the MP lives. So I think it's safe to say that if we're dealing with an estate in the English countryside and it's an MP that lives in a huge mansion, we're looking at something that's like deep Toryville, you know, or at the very least, like very conservative kind of parts of, of the country. There's no cell reception. And there are all these ancient underground tunnels, you know, that Gallus scoped out, you know, for quick entry and um, exit points. And they're completely in the woods now, which again, this is where the far chorus starts becoming more of a, you know, to a lot of people, because it's almost like they've regressed. Uh, to a time before, you know, modern technology and that they're closing in on something very ancient and vital and the old ghosts are beginning to stir. And interestingly, Gal hunts and kills a rabbit and offers it to Jay for dinner and they eat it. And it's kind of a callback to what happened earlier in the film. But it also suggests that is Gal involved somehow with the cult? That's been a question that a lot of people have always asked about this film because of something else that's going to happen in a little while. Now, while they're scoping out this MP's mansion, um, Gal says, it's not right, you know, one man living in all of that. And Jay turns around and says, none of it's right, Gal. That's why we're here. It's like, even now at the 11th hour, Jay still doesn't understand what he is involved in. He's still telling himself that he's actually been sent there to kill presumably a, a corrupt politician or something. It's like, it's justice that he's meeting out. And this is when we get to the big, the big sequence. So that night, 
Jay um, apologizes to Gal for being a dick, you know, over the previous few days. And as they're talking, they start hearing um, the approach of a group of people. And we see, we see a torch-lit procession of cult members. You know, some of them are dressed in flowing white robes. Some of them are naked. They're all wearing these very strange wicker helmets, almost masks, but they cover the entire head, torch-lit. They go to this clearing near this lake. Gal and Jay are watching them. And while they're observing, um, there is no way to watch this sequence, knowing the things that I know, and not immediately snap to the Belgium ex-witness dossiers, you know, the parties on the countryside estates, the nighttime hunts, so on and so forth. I have to wonder if Wheatley is familiar at all with any of this because so much of this film feels like it's influenced by reading about, yeah, kind of parapolitical scandals, you know, across the years. Even indirectly, there a lot of stuff is referenced. And it's here where I think the most symbolically important moment in the entire film occurs because the cult form a circle around a scaffold and they hang um, a woman. And this woman is wearing a dress that is made entirely of 50 and 20 pound banknotes. So this is where I think the the core answer to certainly what the cult is can be found. Now, generally on Ghost Stories for the End of the World, I don't really talk about cults all that much. I think when Jimmy was on for the RFK episode, we discussed the um, cult influence on the RFK hit there. I think I've mentioned the Order of the Solar Temple in the last Halloween show. Generally, I stare around them though because... Um, there seems to be a lot of, you know, symbolism and esotericism that you have to get into and understand and appreciate, you know, to really fully uh, educate yourself about them. And it just seems like a bit outside of my remit for my show on what I mostly focus on. But I find this quite important here because earlier in the show, I said that folk horror is a label that gets attached to this film, you know. Folk horror generally is something that mostly uh, applies to British films. Um, my friend Robert Skvala, I believe he once argued convincingly that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre could be read as American folk horror. And I think there's some decent truth to that because the standard trope of folk horror is some representative of the modern and the contemporary, usually slightly sneery and sniffy about, you know, the old ways, being brought into some kind of horrifying confrontation with the old spirits, the old gods, you know, or certainly their representatives. So think about the Wickerman. Sergeant Howie is a upstanding um, Christian, but he's also a a police officer of a modern, you know, British police force. And he is flown out to the island 
and confronted with a cult that he doesn't understand, he doesn't want to understand, that he judges, that he despises, that he dismisses. And because of his failure to engage properly with these earthy roots of the civilization that's around us today, he's overcome and destroyed by them. Kill List doesn't fit the folk horror mold because this cult is not trying to destroy Jay. This cult has been auditioning him possibly from before we even joined the action at the start of the film. This cult wants Jay. It welcomes him. It views him as some kind of messianic figure, I think. And every step of the way, he has been tested and manipulated and prompted to make what in their eyes is the right decision, you know. The fact that this woman is wearing a dress made of 50 and 20 pound notes speaks to something, I think, about this ongoing thematic element of austerity and recession and capitalism. This cult isn't hanging her as a symbolic rejection of materialism. I think that this cult is some kind of capitalist secret society, you know, some kind of pagan capitalist thing going on. The harvest failed in 2008. It's been failing every year since then. And these sacrifices that the cult is making are all part of, as the client said, reconstruction. They're extremely reactionary and wanting to sort of reimpose and reconstruct a new capitalist society of hierarchy and order, you know. And part of what they need to implement this, this new world order, for lack of a better term, is violent, conscience-free men who are willing to commit untold murders and massacres in order to protect the, the new regime, the reconstruction. The reason this film has been on my mind so much this year is because when I've seen what's coming down the pipeline, you know, the economic fallout of the pandemic, the economic fallout of the, um, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the 2008 crash, how has our government responded to the increasing levels of instability, the cost of living crisis, you know, the escalating energy bills, everything falling apart. The NHS is on the verge of collapse. And again, we're talking about institutions being infiltrated and perverted from within. Then look at the scene with Jay talking to his NHS GP, who it turns out is probably a cult member. Oh no, actually is a cult member. I'll explain why in a second. Where was I? So, what has been our government's response to all of this is to go even harder on the failed methods that haven't worked. They're talking now about bringing in austerity, what, 4.0? I can't even remember what round of austerity we're on at this point, 14 years into it. And what did they do in 2008 in response to the financial sector trashing the world's economy and plunging millions of people into immiseration. What was our government's response to that? It was to literally commit mass sacrifice. How many was it? 120,000, 300,000 people, excess deaths. All of those people are dead now because of the austerity program. They were sacrificed to appease the gods of the market 
and it didn't work. And I think about that quite a lot. Now that I see that the Tories are talking up how we're going to have to enter another phase of austerity to make up for the horrific botch that they made with this mini statement announced the other week. And what is going to be their response to the the chaos that that's unleashed? It's going to be more austerity. So that means more people are going to die. And there's an added twist to it all now because they're bringing in stuff like the spy cops bill, you know, the covert human intelligence sources bill, which basically gives the secret state the right to rape and murder and rob and torture with impunity as long as it's all in service of this religion this fanatical devotion they have to the markets even now at the 11th hour as everything is falling apart they're still wholly entirely committed to it over gal's protestations jay opens up on this gathering you know to try and um, disrupt it and instead, the cult rush Jay and Gal, and this leads to a fucking terrifying chase through these tunnels. And it turns out that Gal thought he'd scouted the tunnels and he knew where all the entrances and exits were. But now they're finding sections that have been bricked up somehow. And again, raises the question of, is Gal complicit somehow? Or is this all some kind of strange fever dream that's happening? Gal gets disemboweled by one of the cult members and Jay puts him out of his misery. But before he shoots him, Gal actually says, thank you, just like the other cult members did. And then Jay uh, races back to the cottage where Shell and his son are hiding out. And this leads to a kind of siege situation because it turns out the cult have followed him. And when he goes out to try and flank around them and picks them off, he's knocked out. Shell manages to drop a couple in the house and then we hear a window break and it abruptly cuts the hunchback. Big white letters across the screen. And here's Jay. He's stripped to the waist. He's got a knife that's put in his hand. And there's this figure. It's horrifying. This figure in a long white sheet, all like hunched over, barely able to move right, waving a knife around. Jay like reads it as danger and he seems out of it. He seems disoriented. And that's something else as well that I've been wondering about is, has he been kept in a sort of state of drug-induced mania throughout this film? Remember the cut to the hand? Could be that that was treated with some kind of poison or psychoactive compound or something. He's been abusing the medication that he's prescribed for his pain and his PTSD. And... I flashed then on the fact that there was actually a British MK Ultra program in, I believe, the 50s and the early part of the 60s. So maybe there's a little hint there that something else is going on as well. Anyway, Jay gets in there, stabs the hunchback. When the hunchback falls to the floor, he goes at it some more. And when he stands up, this is the part where, if you've seen this film, you never forget this sequence. The cult begin clapping. And that music is playing again. And he pulls the mask. He pulls the mask off the hunchback. Pulls it off. And it's Shell. It's his beloved wife, Shell, that he's just killed. She's all covered in blood. And she starts laughing. She starts laughing. And Wheatley makes a point 
of dropping the sound of the music and raising the sound of her laughter at this point. And then Jay, he reaches over, pulls back the rest of this white sheet, and there's his kid. He's just killed both his wife and his kid. And as he's staring at this completely blank in the face, the client pulls his mask off, reveals himself. The GP pulls his mask off, reveals himself. Fiona pulls her mask off, reveals herself. And they put a fucking crown on Jay, a wooden crown. And the music comes back at this point. I don't know if this was Wheatley's intention, but it does feel like there's something very allegorical here about what it means to be British and to be in this system and to try and struggle against it without any real ideology, so to speak. To try and struggle against it without any real clue of what it is that you are up against. Because every step of the way in this film Jay has made decisions and taken action that shows he's trying to kick against the, the system that he's a part of. And all any of it has done has enmeshed him deeper and deeper into it. The same way that a fly caught in a spider's web, the more it thrashes about, the more bound up and tangled it gets until the spider responds to the vibration. And finally, here at the, the very last moment, in thinking that he was fighting against this reconstruction, this strange pagan capitalist cult, this system, in thinking that, Jay has somehow found himself in a position where he's just sacrificed his own wife and his own son. And I wanna just kind of return now to the folk horror or not discussion. Because again, folk horror implies that they are, there are two forces in conflict with each other, the modern and the ancient, you know, and they butt against each other. And usually if you make the folk horror film correctly, the, the ancient eventually overwhelms and emerges triumphant. It's a nice suitably bleak ending. What happens in Kill List that, dare I say, subverts our expectations is that not only does Jay not become destroyed by the cult, he actually becomes their new figurehead, their new leader, because he was struggling against it, you know. And you go a step further and you think, why is it that he was chosen by them? He is an Iraq war veteran, so he's familiar with violence and with carrying out pointless acts of such for no discernible be benefit, you know. He became a hitman. He carries out orders unquestioningly. He is the perfect agent, but he's also deep down in places that he doesn't like to talk about at dinner parties. 
He likes it. He likes the killing. He likes the violence. He is a man who lives in denial of his past, of his future, of what he is, and of what he really wants to do. I don't think you could get anything more British than that. That finally all these dark, horrifying forces that are churning inside of him find expression in the worst way possible. He sacrifices his own wife and child and in so doing gets promoted. He fails upwards. He literally fails upwards. And with that, the film ends and we see the cult symbol again and there is no more. And there is actually a quote by Ben Wheatley. Him and his uh, wife have <clears throat> kept pretty quiet about, you know, the deeper meanings of Kill List. And frankly, everything that I've shared with you over the last hour or so, it, it could be right, it could be wrong. I think the beauty of that film is you can just read what you like into it. But I think I'm pretty close to the money. And there's this quote by Ben Wheatley, and he said this, the cult is pretty loosely defined. We didn't do any research, not intentionally. My underlying thinking comes out of the very little bit of research we did do about sacrifices. If crops fail, you have to sacrifice something or someone, and it placates the gods. So the cult is like a very baseline original religion, and their new rituals are all around money. Now, there was... Another theory that was very popular when this film first came out, which is that because of the way Shell responds to what's happened, you know, laughing hysterically, she is somehow part of the cult and she's pleased or overjoyed that Jay has finally, you know, fulfilled his destiny or something like that. But Ben Wheatley says that it's something much more grounded because what's happened here to Shell is that she is now way out there. All the structures have failed her. All the institutions have failed her. Some of this is through her undoing, you know, her complicity with Jay's lifestyle. Some of it is through Jay's own, you know, toxic masculinity, bringing them to this point, this insistence on pursuing his vendettas and trying to assert himself in the face of something that he doesn't and refuses to understand. Everything now has completely fallen apart. So what else can you do at that point other than laugh at the sheer horrifying irony of it all? That represents the first installment of our trilogy of terror for the, the week building up to Halloween. Got something very special planned uh, for, I believe, midweek. Um, something a bit lighter, a bit more fun, you know, but having a couple of pals drop by for that one. And then, yeah, hopefully um, we'll have something special for you the week after for Halloween itself. Until next time, and as ever, check the sightlines, mark the exits, and don't get reconstructed. Really